What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, I am so honored. My very special guest is the one, the only, Mr. Paul Schaefer, legendary star of the stage and screen. How are you doing, my friend? Please, please, no applause. No applause, please. <laughs> Joe, it's good to see you, if only virtually. Yes. Um, but I must say, you know, the last time I saw you, we were both rocking right. and rolling, but mostly rocking on the on the ship, the cruise, the blues cruise that you that you have been running every year, which is absolutely fabulous. And I did it for you twice. So thank you for asking me. Oh, so nice. And, and you know, it was it was great because, you know, those the, the to me, you are the greatest music director of all time. You know, you 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 were able to put those legendary jams together for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for th all those years. And the way you ran, you know, the Letterman band. And, and it's just, you know, to have you on the ship, it was like it was like a dream come true. It's like, hey, that's the best in the biz right there. So thank you. Thank you for coming. When you say it, it makes it so. So uh, thanks again. <laughs> it is a total gas. And it's great to get introduced to all the blues players that you have on the boat many of whom I'm unfamiliar with, but by the time I get off, very familiar with them, you know, and you've got the best of the best. On your Instagram page, you are, you are spotted in all places, a lot of places in the city playing. I remember you did, uh, was it Bobby Womack's, uh, you know, 110th Street, and you, there you are with your keyboard and you're singing. And to me, that's the most entertaining Instagram feed going right now. So thank you for keeping music going, live music going in New York. It's a one, I know it's a one man operation at this point, but you're, you're, you're doing God's work. Sweet of you to say, Joe, you know, I, I've been, it's been explained to me that if you have an Instagram account, you've got to provide content. Right. So, it was uh, Olivia, who, whom you know, I think who works for me, right. who said, you know, what if you go to different places around New York and sing songs inspired by those places. Well, all I could think of was, and I think we may have talked about it on the boat, but when I was a kid, 19 eight or so, maybe 15 in Canada, and I turned on the television one night and saw Murray the K's It's What's Happening Baby. Right. Murray the K, the New York disc jockey, sold the government on a two-hour network special so that he could promote the job corps and things for them. But all he said was, baby, your government is what's happening. Right. <laughs> but the, as far as music, video, really maybe the first pop videos. And when I saw the Drifters, and this was, you know, 65, singing up on the roof, and they're actually up on the roof. Right. You know, that stuck with me. And yeah. so when, when Olivia said you should do, I said, that's, you know, I related to the idea. And to be at 110th Street, Right. Singing across, I got a real kick out of it, and I'm glad you did too. Now, do, like when you're doing those, like do people come up to you and go, "No, it can't be." Oh, not much anymore. No, <laughs> uh, and some of them. It was great that the people were just walking by as right. if nothing happening. Right. And that's New York, you know. I was in Spanish Harlem singing that song, mm -hmm. and people were just trying to get by, you know, just as it should be. It's New York. You know, New York has never been a paparazzi kind of town. If you see people walking around, it's like it, it's just another just another day in the office. Um, That's true. 
um, tell me about your time, because um, we talked about this on the cruise ship, but um, tell me about your time at Saturday Night Live. You were there from the very beginning to about 1980. And, yes. and, and you know, those, the, for a lot of people, those are the formative years of Saturday Night Live. That's the Gilda Radners and the John Belushi's and, yeah. and, 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 you know, Ackroyd's and all that. And, and, you know, but you knew Gilda from a play you you guys were doing in Toronto and you, oh, you spark short and all those and and explain to the folks like you know how that whole thing kind of migrated from Toronto to New York and then ultimately to Saturday Night Live. Uh, um, there was a show in the 70s a rock musical called Godspell mm -hmm. uh, and it was my first job I got hired just on a fluke to to put a, it was only a four-piece band you know so my first time leading a band for a for a legitimate show, and I was able to do it because it was just the four of us. And I was used to, you know, my my rock band in high school was four pieces, so I I was all set. And and um, this is a musical written by the composer Stephen Schwartz, who, and it was his first musical too. But since then, he's written a bunch of them, including Wicked, which is longest running. Right. Uh, I almost said still running, but <laughs> nothing is. Right. Anyway, he, he hired me, and I, I was there accompanying a girlfriend, playing a song from his show, and he said, I want to talk to that piano player, and he hired me just like that, and he hired the most wonderful cast, including Gilda, who was from Detroit, but was up there, had, right. had gone up there with a boyfriend, I think, and was doing theater up there, but also, and all of us are still great friends now, Martin Short and Eugene Levy and uh, Andrea Martin, who I always say is the funniest, I think, of all of them. Gilda was in this show too, and and I'm forgetting Victor Garber, you know, from Alias, was in it. It was like this monstrous talent of people that Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz, put together. Right. Uh, we all remained friends. Lauren Michaels, the producer of SNL, also from Toronto, familiar with Gilda from up there, started casting his show and hired a number of Canadians. Mm -hmm. Her. He hired Dan Aykroyd, whom I knew up there. I had met Belushi when I first got to Manhattan because it was a sort of a, you know, second city uh, club, nightclub. They didn't have the SCTV show yet, but they had a nightclub in Toronto. And a lot of these people who were into improv and comedy, you know, uh, knew each other. And this was the crowd that Lauren was interested. So he cast a number of those people. And then his best friend, Howard Shore, He's now a movie composer, Oscar-winning movie composer. But he came from Toronto to, to put the band together, house band, 10-piece mm -hmm. band. And I was already in Toronto, in, uh, had left Toronto, doing Broadway in New York for Stephen Schwartz. Right. Got the call from Howard. I'm doing this show, you know, it's improv. There are gildas in it. I, I know you know her and stuff. And I said, Howard, I can't, I can barely read music, you know, I, although I took my share of piano lessons and everything, and I can read and arrange and everything, but I couldn't, can't sight read, still can't. And he had to sort of talk me into it. You'll be all right. It's not like we'll have enough rehearsal, you know. Well, he cooled me out, and I took the gig. And right. Was, of course, you know, it's, the show's still running now. What can one say? Fantastic. Now, was, it, was it a difficult decision? You know, because I know, like, when you look back and you go, well, I was playing, you know, playing piano on Broadway and you had a gig. And, you know, we were talking earlier about, like, when you're in New York City and you have a paying gig and you, you know the rent's paid and you're stable, 
you're it, the, the, you you are on you you're you're living you're living life you know was it a difficult well, to go from Broadway to to a show that was unproven you know because now it's legendary but it, but it, at that time they're going we're just putting together a show for eleven thirty on a Saturday night. Um, you know it's it's um, I, I can't quite remember it was it was so far so long ago but. But, but what I do remember is that I didn't leave the Broadway show right away. I right. was doing both. And it was sort of possible for a while, first couple of SNLs, to do them both. Because uh, I could just run over, you know, and do a rehearsal and then get back in time for the 7.30 curtain. It was a family show, so it went early. And then sometimes go back because they were an all-night kind of crowd. Right. And, but then, when it, you know, it wasn't until... It started getting impossible. Oh, they need me. You know, I had to keep subbing out of the Broadway show. And finally, I just had to give my notice. And it was not, you know, by that time, the show looked like maybe, you know, it might run for for a year anyway. Right. Uh, no one thought 40 years, whatever. But, it, but no, I mean, good question, but absolutely not. And this was television, for goodness sake. Broadway, you know, thank God for Stephen Schwartz, of course. And... Um, but it, it wasn't really my thing, um, especially at that time. Sound was primitive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were always in the, in the rock musicals in the 70s, always 15 feet in the air, in the back. Right. You had to climb up a thing and you're up there. And these little monitors, this big, they looked like they're from the Second World War or right. hanging, you know. And the one cue I had to play like the opening and then reach up and turn it down because it was actually leaking out into the audience oh you know, up in the Broadway theater. And, oh, my God, it was just, it wasn't a place for music at that time. Right. I think it may have changed. Certainly yeah. when I saw the Who's Tommy, right. it was nice and loud. And I said, well, you know, this, you can do rock and roll on Broadway. At that time, I didn't even think it was possible. But now, you, you know, they have figured it out. You know, it was funny. I was reading today that... Um, you were able to you you have a, I don't know if considered a badge of honor, but it's but it is part of historical record. You were the first f bomb on 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 SNL when during a trog sketch, and it got past the censors even on the rerun, which to me was I'm like wow because back then it was like there was a lot of words you could say now on television that you can't say, you know that you couldn't say in the 70s, but I mean like. Was it just that you were in the moment in the sketch and didn't realize it, and then nobody? Well, actually, I mean, it's a, it's a long story, but yes, I was in a sketch. The Trogs sketch you're referring to it has to do with a tape. You know right. how sometimes if somebody's running a tape in the studio and secretly, and then the tape gets out. Well, this was the Trogs, a, you know, a, a band from Britain and in, in the '60s who sang "Wild Thing," "You Make My Heart Sing," right. and now we hear them in the studio on this underground tape trying to follow up Wild Thing, but they have no idea how to communicate with each other. Right. They don't know music. All they could really say is the F word, and they're saying it over and over again. Right. So it's Franken and Davis, the great comedy team, uh, who's, who had the idea, let's transcribe the Trogs tape, and we'll, we'll transpose the whole thing to a medieval band rehearsing. Right. Uh, saying the words of the trogs, but since we can't say the F word, we'll make up our own word. And every second word was the flogging this and the flogging that. So we made up flogging instead of, right, you right. know, you had the flogging beat before, but we were also doing 
bad English accents. Right. I think really that may have had something to do with it getting across because after the uh, dress rehearsal, which was hilarious, people just falling over. Former Senator Al Franken, who had written sketch, came to me and said, you know, it's so funny. If you want to add a few more of those floggins, be my guest. Well, then I, he should have said that. I got loose. I started adding them, and one time it slipped. The, the F and B, and, I, and I've seen it, and I remember that the blood drained out of my head, and I went, oh, my God. And I turned, like, to say, what am I going to do now? And then I say, where are we in the sketch? And I turned back to the cards, but I'm just, you know, and I think it was obvious to everybody it was a mistake, and that, that's why I didn't lose my job and and Lauren the producer came up to me every afterwards and he said well you just broke down the last barrier <laughs> uh, and yeah you know so he knew but others as you may remember have gotten fired for the same thing mine was obviously not planned yeah and you're and you're and you're and you're walking a very fine line because you're you're flogging is it, you're you're replacing we're playing one with of course we're playing yeah. with word that we're not supposed to say and again we with our it, put on english accents and i as a canadian should be ashamed i do i should have done a better british right. accent than that but you couldn't really you know you couldn't understand flogging or what and right. i think it's not i don't think it's any anymore if you bought the dvd or anything right i think it's fine see um your character um that you played on spinal tap Artie Pupkin. Thank you. Thank you for remembering one of my hits. Thank you. Yeah, and and the the thing is, if you're not in the music business and you watch Spinal Tap, it's just one. It's hysterical because of just the writing and the and the performances and stuff like that. But if you're in the music business, our, we've all met Artie in our careers, a regional promotion rep, you know, and. Was that based on someone or uh, or an experience, or was that just because you were in the music business? You going, I know, I, I I know what to do here. Well, it was no, it was based on two people. Um, first of all, as far as the acting, you know, I'm no actor, but I used to on Saturday Night Live do an impression of Don Kirshner, the the publisher from the '60s who had his own show, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. And was real a guy from the Bronx, very st- fast-talking promoter off-camera. But as soon as he got on camera, he began, I'm Don Kirshner, and this is right. So that was all I could do, really. Right. I was talking with an accent that reminded me of Don Kirshner, because that's all I could do. Then, uh, when I said to Harry Shearer, who got me this job, I, w- I, you know, I said, so you'll send my lines to me? And he says, you'll be making them up. <laughs> and that's the way the movie was, you know. There were scene outlines, but no script. Everybody had to make their own lines up. So it just happened. I was friendly, and this was 82 or something, 81 maybe. Friendly with an actual promo guy. I don't know how I met him. I would be going to a, a music business event, you know, maybe a, a party for Duran Duran or something. You know, that was... You know, because I was on Letterman and I met this guy and I'll tell I'll say his name. I haven't seen him since then, but his name was Jim Knapp and he was a national promo man. But boy, did he have the sayings and stuff. And I just would listen to him talk 
And I would start to just, you know, write these things down because they were, as the comics say, gold. And some of these jargon, you know, well, I remember he did talk about a party he went to given by an Arab sheik that Mm -hmm. had a lot of rock stars and promo men. And he said, the sheik had his bartender and his blowtender. And I said, write that down, you know. I'm writing this stuff down for the for the movie. And sure enough, you know, a lot of it I, I, I did use. So those two guys, the promo man, Jim Knapp and Kirshner. It, it was it was legendary because, you know, when I first saw Spinal Tap as a kid, I was in a band and we were on one of those national promotion tours that wasn't going very well this is we this were is a tour where you were performing or just signing in-store signing which one we were doing a combination of both we were they were working a single we were a new band this was in the early 90s we were a new band and they were having us do a combination of you know like radio promo spots in the morning in stores like you know you know at, at what you know al's records and tapes and then we would we would we would do a gig at night, and I remember we had a van and we had a VHS copy of Spinal Tap, and that scene in the record store was pretty much happening to us three times a week. Right. Oh, and wow. Spinal Tap's tour was going better than our tour. Ah. That was that was the joke. We're going. That's when you know. Yeah. Wow. That's when you know you're in trouble. Well, the record yeah. store thing was, although no script, but they did. It was based on something that had happened to the creators, Harry and Michael McKeon, who had been in a comedy group. They made comedy records, and the group was called The Credibility Gap. And they signed to Warner Brothers, and they were on a promo tour, and that happened to them. And a guy actually said, kick my ass. And so they said, you know, this is what we're doing. you got to come in. Everything goes wrong. There's no people. Finally, you have a a guilt attack and you you start to decompose and you say guys kick my ass and right. okay roll them you know and that so that that's what that was based on their actual experience not mine but still i got into it and, and it's one of the most quoted lines of the movie because when i announced on instagram just like please welcome my friend paul shaver to our show about 50 people immediately going Kick my ass! Kick this! Ass, you know, and, and I'm like, I'm like, it, it is, it is, is burnt into history, and well, it's such a classic character. That's all. I am humbled, and uh, you know, in the face of such praise, what can I say? No, it's great. I mean, it's you know, it's one of the things. Now, here's a question for you, just off the top of my head. If you were to write your own bio, how would how would you describe yourself? An actor, comedian, musician? or entertainer? Well, that's a good question. I mean, certainly not an actor, although I've had a a chance to be in sketches and do some acting, you know, even in movies and stuff, a little bit. But, but, uh, I mean, and a musician, that's what I always wanted to be, and certainly, you know, was a musician on Broadway, uh, and then a musician in the studios, and like all, uh, so many of the studio guys who got to do it, uh, that was my happiest time, for sure, playing on records and, and commercials and everything else you get to do. Uh, but I guess, you know, I wouldn't have really been able to stay. They would have thrown me out of the country long ago. I think <laughs> if I had, would just a piano, you know, not just, I don't mean to say that. I, all I wanted to be was a piano player, but I think I became an entertainer. 
as a way to get over. Right. You know, nobody's going to pay for this. I said to myself, I got to come up with something. And so I, you know, I made everything bigger and uh, that I did and was, was inspired by those friends of mine from Godspell Toronto, Gilda and right. Marty. And how much fun they seemed to be having, not only on stage, but in life. They were these funny people. And I, you know, a little of it, I said, I got to get some of that to rub off on me. And, you know, and that's why I developed sort of an entertainer persona. And, you know, the thing is, like, you know, it, when you got the, the, the Letterman show, this is when, around 82. Um, and, and, you know, in, in that form, you know, there's still, you know, band leaders today are still using the playbook you wrote. You know, because before that, there wasn't there wasn't a band leader that that was there was commentary and, and comic, you know, back and forth with the host. And you kind of came up with that role. And I saw firsthand just how involved your job was when I was honored to, to sit in with the Letterman you band. They sat in with, with us not. for the whole show and watched the whole thing. Right. And yeah. we wear the, we wore, excuse me, I, I was transported back. We wore the ear monitors, of course, which meant not only could we hear each other, but I had a, a secret mic. I could talk to you and everybody else while right. the show was going on and tell you what was going to, what was going to be happening next, you know. And uh, Yes, you saw all that going. But in, uh, uncannily, when I would be talking to you, uh, I'd miss a cue and Dave is saying, Paul, you know, the next thing I, Paul, can you, are you? Are you doing your own show over there? He would say, yeah. oh, sorry, Dad. He would catch me. I don't know how he did it, you know, because right. he needed that feedback somehow, even if I was only, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. I learned to do, you know, that, that he kind of needed that just to make sure somebody was listening, you know, made him feel better. You know, and the thing I, I, the thing I came away um, uh, from, from that gig was, I mean, I go, wow. You know, Paul and these guys, the whole band, which is fantastic. You know, I got to, you know, play guitar next to Felicia and Sid. And I'm like, Will, you know, Anton, you know. And uh, and I go, these guys, the, the, this band just makes it look easy. And, and it's and it's really not. And the other thing I did notice was you guys use the same heaters as the, they're using currently outside in the restaurants here in New York City. Yeah, I think we developed <laughs> Well, there was a point where, I mean, it's everybody, you know, it was no secret that Dave Letterman liked that studio cold right. for whatever reason, whether it was that it kept the audience alive, I don't know, but he wasn't going to change it. And I was having trouble. And I think all of us in the band playing, I couldn't play the piano too cold. You know, it reminded me of my days up in Thunder Bay, Canada in the hockey arena. Right. We would play every Saturday night with ice, you know, under plywood. It wasn't that cold up there. But right. somebody had the idea, we'll put heaters over you guys. And they did. God bless them. We had heat, radiant heat above us. Dave couldn't feel it from where he was. And then we also, some of us had blowers going from below, too. Right. It was, it was wicked in there. Nonetheless, we got, you know, and as soon as we got those heaters, sure enough, the, the music loosened up a little bit, too. I'd listen at night and say, what's wrong? Everybody's good. What's going on here? You know, and it got better when it got warm. And then yeah. you picked up Anton. I think Anton did the last show of Letterman. And the next day he was on a plane to join you on the road. Isn't that true? He, yes, in 2015, he was on a plane. He came to, uh, 
came to make a record with me. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, you know, Anton had been playing, the great Anton Fig, where everybody knows, uh, um, he had been playing on my record since 2006. So he'd been working with me for 10 years. And Anton, there's those great adventures in Greece where he would rap on a Thursday night with you guys on Letterman, get on a, get on a plane, fly to Santorini, downbeat on Friday and be back for the show. It was like, it was nuts, but he just, he just loves to play and he loves yeah. to play. Oh, he's, he's probably one well, of the most- He wasn't telling me that. <laughs> no. But I did one with him once where we flew to um, Nice, you know, right. a weekend for a Blues Brothers thing and then back and, you know, little did I know he was doing it every weekend with you. I thought it was, I said, Oh, I got sick right after, you know, got the flu and said, right. I'll never do that again. He does it. You guys all do it as a matter of course. So um, tell me, you know, I, I wrote down some 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 of the musicians you've collaborated with on the Letterman Band because, you know, I mean, it's the, the, the original band, the four piece with uh, it was Hiram Bullock and Steve Jordan and Will and yourself. And and, you know, you know, just in a couple of sentences, you know, tell me, tell me what Hiram, the late great Hiram Bullock, was like as a guitar player, because he's he so re, he's so revered by our generation and and you know people. He was you know such a great rhythm player. He could do anything. Of course, rhythm is my favorite too. The kind of rhythm that guitar that'll make you dance, and right. and he had that, uh, and everything else. Uh, he played that one guitar, the strap. Right. You could get any sound out of it. Um, I didn't know that when I hired him that Strat was in the pawn shop. He had to break in, I think, and get it, which he did. Um, but he could absolutely play anything from a solo on a Beach Boys thing, you know, to, totally in character, like Carl Wilson, to soulful, you know, to Hendrix. Just like, you know, like Hendrix would have played off the, you know, we never heard. Yes. Yeah. This is what Hendrix sounds like, you know, late at night. And of course, he knew uh, not just blues and rock, but he was a jazz player and a bebop player. He could play those styles like for real, you know, not just play at them like I might do. But he could play all these styles for real. And was a sweetheart too, and liked all music. He right. knew all the, the entire. Will Lee was there reminiscing. You don't find many guys like Hiram who knew the whole Crosby, Stills, and Nash catalog, back but, and all the lyrics. But, right. But he did, you know. Yet he also knew, you know, fav, Coltrane, favorite things, you know, and all the Central Park West, everything. He knew his, his ears were big, and and his repertoire huge. Yeah, that's you know, like some some people are just naturally like that. You know what I mean? They 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 just they the the they're these great sponges. You know, and I and I you know you know tell me a little bit about I know I know he's, he'll he'll hate me if I don't ask. Um, tell me a little bit about Anton because Anton's you know what you were just describing about Hiram. He's kind of the same way. He 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 knows if you need a ginger baker type of thing. If you need a, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just. From everybody from... Well, know. those were the kind of people that I really needed. And I kind of knew, that being on the scene at that time, and there was a studio scene at that time, and I kind of got to know, and I had friends who were players and knew who knew the same songs that I knew. That was important to me because I was just... It was a daily show, and I just wanted to call tunes. 
you know, I want to call, hey, Jude, or something. I right. don't want somebody to say, you know, well, do you have the courts? No, you just know, you got to know, hey, Jude, come on. Right. Uh, you know, that was the kind of thing. And so, um, well, I had met Anton on a studio, in the studio, and it was on a record date for the British artist, uh, Joan Armitrade. Right. We made a beautiful record with her. Will Lee was the bass player, too. So here I am playing with Anton and Will together. And, you know, I kind of remembered that feeling. And also the fact that Anton was a schooled musician like Will. Right. He, you know, he had a mu music degree from uh, wherever in New, New England Conservatory or something in percussion. Yet he was, you know, he his sound was rock and roll. He had a hard rock sound. And as you know, he played on certain of the Kiss records anonymously and, uh, you know, anytime go-go's and stuff, anytime anybody wanted a real rock drummer who could also groove, Anton would get this call, you know, and it turned out he was perfect for my band too. And uh, Anton's got a great story about the, the, the Kiss sessions and he's, Peter's coming out, he's coming in and Peter asked, you know, or vice versa and he goes, how was I? And Anton, you were great. <laughs> Funny, funny. How was I? I never heard that one. But yeah. I, what I remember from that, we were at the record plant um, um, B, you know, uh, on 44th Street in Manhattan. Right. And um, Kisses in one part, and they're doing, and they were doing I Was Made for Loving You. Oh, no, this, I guess it may have been a little after that. But anyway, Gene Simmons had Anton in the lobby, and he was, and he was trying to sell him on merchants, something about merchandising how he should really sign, I think, all his merchandising rights over to Kiss Incorporated. And, and Gene Simmons was saying, what if I wanted to release an Anton perfume? And, you know, I heard that, but I said, I just, I'm going to keep walking. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, it, it, uh, he, Anton, about three years ago now, he, he was invited to a Kiss convention oh, yeah. where they sign autographs, and he'd never done one. But apparently, in that community, he was the one of the most sought-after autographs because he never did anything like this. He was always on Letterman or you know working, and he, he and I and I see him a couple of days later because he jumps off the road and goes to Indianapolis. I go, how did he go? He goes, he goes there was a line of like three hundred people all weekend. And he was getting five dollars. He made a, he made a fortune. Good for him. Good for uh, him. All right. Well, we got to remember that when we. Time for yeah. us to start doing those conventions. What's the, what's the, you know, you've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artists perform on Letterman. Does any one particular performance of fine artists stick out to you? Wow, that was like, that was the best I've ever seen. Well, uh, I mean, a number of them, but certainly every time James Brown appeared, and he did it quite a few times. Right. But, Time was, you know, floored me and all of us musicians in the band it was a music lesson of some kind every single time. Very right. first time he did it back in 82. He's one of the first guys to to do the show. And he had his agent call us. James liked to come on the show, play with the band. I think he heard us doing his stuff, you know, on the way out to commercial. Right. We were doing a lot of uh, James Brown instrumental stuff. Hiram, of course, you know, could play yeah. that. Like, like nobody's business. And um, so we're getting a call. He'd like to come. And he brought two horns. That's it. Two of his own horns. Sinclair 
Pictey. Right. And Holly Ferris was his band leader and trumpet player. And he said, what does the band want to play? Wow. Well, that was a knockout. But so smart in retrospect, because he knew what if we picked, you know, we would say songs we knew. Right. How familiar, you know, but if we, I'll let the band pick what they feel comfortable with. But we sent him some, maybe some left turns because of how much we loved him. And Steve Jordan was the drummer at that time, first drummer before Anton. And he said, well, Sex Machine, put that down, you know. And, and Anton, uh, excuse me, um, Hiram said, well, there was a time. I got to, you know, to play that guitar with him. That would be amazing. So he, he said, okay. And he came in to do those two songs with us. And it just took off like a, like a flying saucer. Right. It, you know, it breathtaking so much so that after his second number, and it, which was there was a time we didn't even have time to, for an ending. We didn't have much rehearsal time. So I didn't know how we were going to end it. Right. But he ended it. He just cut us off. And then after his interview, he heard us playing one of his other things going to a commercial. And he said, and if I may, this is how it sounded. You know what I'd like to do right now? He says to Letterman. You know what I'd like to do right now? Before you close, can we close with, I got, I got the feeling? And you hear Steve Jordan go, whoa! Right. We all watched this tape so many times. That's why I remember it so well. We had, I had my first, first VCR machine. Right. Steve Jordan and I would, every after the show, after, for the whole rest of the week, we'd go right over to my place and turn on that James Brown and memorize not only the hits and the, and the music, but the interview. Right. Like we could all do the whole thing. Will can do it too. That's you know, how exciting. It's, you know, it's, it, it's exciting. You know, I, I was having a conversation with a couple of friends of mine this week on this program, like, you know, how lucky, I mean, I'm 43 years old and I got to see acts that are no longer with us, people that are no longer with us um, at the, at the height of their powers or right at the very end. And, Every day I wake up as a musician, and, and I feel fortunate that I was able to at least witness this live and not have to describe it. I mean, you know, I mean, you work with so many, you know, of, of the of the greats. You know, I I remember, you know, every year, you know, uh, uh, you know, like Al Green would be on like once a year, Pretty and much, yes. he would come out. Let's stay together, and you're like, on this is just insanely good. You know, I know I, I knew it at the time, but now in retrospect, I'm I feel I, you know, more so how blessed I was. Yeah. Uh, have those experiences and all, and all my favorites, too, you know, uh, or people that I was idolizing up in Canada, hearing on the radio and stuff, you know, American radio, Little Rock, Arkansas station after midnight, we could get up there, you know, and hear B.B. King. Oh, my God. And Buddy Guy and all, of, you know, not all. And the Wilson Pickett and all, all my, plus, uh, you know, it, it was a hell of a run. So right. I, I am thankful and not, you know, not jaded about it at all. And I, just like you said, we got to play with people that are no longer around, that people can only hear on record. We saw them live and sometimes played with them. I, I remember, you know, like sitting with John Lee Hooker when I was a kid, like 12 at the Great American Music Hall in, in San Francisco. And I remember very specifically, this was my first introduction into the blues is not 12 bars. 
the blues is how many bars John he says. Yeah, whatever he change, you know? And I mean that must have been a challenge, I mean, because you know, you know, going from a four piece to an orchestra, that's like it's like that's like steering a Ferrari and now you're steering a cruise ship because you've got a lot of moving parts and you know and and you know how much do you think you know when you would back somebody up how much did do you ever have any experience where like the rehearsals went great and then and then it just took a left turn and you're like oh, we got to we got to recover this you know yeah yeah and and certainly you know we got to play with John Lee Hooker once mm-hmm. and it was um he had a guy named Jimmy Rogers with him, he must be familiar with him. He's a guitar player from Bay Area. Yeah. Not the Rogers who said, oh, 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 and not that. Anyway, so he had a guy with him to theoretically explain, you know, what John Lee was gonna do, but you never knew. But but then you could sort of feel it. And I must say, we got to, we felt it in the rehearsal, but mm-hmm. not quite on the show. Just what you were saying. When is he going to go to the four? You're not, you know, oh, now, but no, he didn't. Oh, he changed it. You know, you don't know. you got to really be steeped in it. Right. Uh, and then I have, I got a story that goes with that. Do we have time? I don't know. Do we have to cut away? No time in the world. No commercials? No commercials. Not yet. <laughs> there is a British critic. You might be familiar with him. I bet he's reviewed you. And his name is Charles Char Murray, S-H-A-R. Right. Um, and he's very respected. And he wrote, uh, I had pneumonia at one point during the Letterman uh, run, and I was home for like about two weeks, and I got a lot of people send you over. And somebody sent me over a hard cover book, John Lee Hooker, this thick, by the British critic Charles Char Murray. And I well, I'm set. You know, this is going to get me, get me through the next, I'll be better by the time I finish. I'm so excited, you know. Right. Everything I read is so interesting. What he's like and where, you know, what his inspiration. And then it comes to a part where he does the Letterman show. And I said, what? And right. I start to read. And Charles Shaw Murray starts, who is this band that they got to back him up? It's us. But right. Her, first of all, he says, the bass player comes out and jumps up and down. <laughs> and he says, this is the band that's going to, you know, and of course we were, you know, I, I see his point because as I say, we would, well, we, I wish he'd been at the rehearsal, but one right. thing to read when you have no more, I went right back to bed. Right, right. This is not, this is not my day. Yeah, no, no. Let me go to bed. I had to get through three quarters of the book though to get to that part. <laughs> Well, you know, famously, you know, I mean, if you listen to when Buddy Guy came out at the Beacon Theater with the Rolling Stones and they do Champagne and Reefer, it's yeah. the same. There's a part of that song where there's n- nobody except Buddy Guy knows where the where the change is. And Daryl Jones, I think Daryl saves it because okay. he, he feels the cycle. But Keith and Ronnie, they're they're ones. Yeah. But it, you know, to me, it didn't take away from the magic of the moment because it was it was real and, and human. Yeah. Tell me, tell me your thoughts because as the show progressed, you know, the technology and live music playing progressed, and you know, you know, by 2015 when the show ended, you would see bands on there that I, I was like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if anybody's playing any, you know, <laughs> I, I I hear it. But but even the Beatles weren't that in tune. You know what I mean? It's like and you're 
and, and it's a, it's a, it, it's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying it's just a different school. Well, I certainly, yeah. I mean, I can speak to it because I was on a, a show at the time as this transition took place. Uh, and we used to have a rule, and it was Dave, from David Letterman himself. No tracks. Right. Let's have no tracks from these acts. They got to play. We're paying them full, you know, $475, whatever the scale is. Right. We want them to play, and, and we were able to maintain that policy for a while. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's probably why we, the band, got to play with a lot of the hip-hop acts initially, because we were saying no tracks. And that's all they all, you know, right. no disrespect, but they work to, you know, they create their stuff on computers, and they, they work to uh, DJ and tracks, etc., so they were up for it, too. And we had a lot of wonderful experiences with people like LL Cool J and Snoop Dogg and stuff actually playing with the band. And they would be surprised that we could do anything because they didn't make this stuff that way, you know. Right. Uh, we would interpret it with live, you know. If there's a sampled bass, well, let's play with a real bass. And Will Lee, you know, he's going to figure out how to get that trigger, that sample with his guitar anyway, you know. Right. So that's how we... But eventually, it just became impossible especially when over at leno they're welcoming their whole tracks and quad pro tools rig and whatever come on in you know and bring your dancers so it was we no longer could maintain that rule right and, even, and then even the rock acts yeah or at least had their background vocals on tracks and that and that we saw an era change what what can you say I, you know, I'd rather, to me, I'm, I'm old school, I'd rather hear it out of tune but in, in the room than, than perfect. But it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of doing things. Tell me about this band, The Honey Drippers, you were in. Because that, yeah. that's one of the most, like, if you, if you, you were in a band with Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Brian Setzer. I mean, like, the, the list is, I mean, it was kind of a super group revolving door, but it was, you were in the first iteration of it. That's right, and it was... I got the call on the musician's service, which was called registry at the time, radio and TV registry, the old fashioned way they would book musicians mm -hmm. for record dates and, you know, and, and back in the day. And they were still around in the 70s when I got to town and they would book, you know, a service to book you and a call just came in. Robert Plant, Saturday and Sunday morning, three hours in the morning, three hours in the evening two, for two days. Of course I'll be there. I didn't know what it was. Found out later that that it was Robert and his old pal, the great Ahmed Erdogan, you know, founder of Atlantic Records, right, you know, with the other guys, Wexler and Abram Abramson. Uh, but apparently they had, you know, a, a great plant. Although they Zeppelin took the blues to another level, he was a fan of the original stuff that Ahmed loved too, the real Southern blues, the Chicago blues, etc. And they had a lot of fun together and they said, boy, it would be great to get some guys together, kind of whoever's in town, you know, and cut some things and call it the Honey Drippers. And right. so that was the premise. And that's what they did. And the, these first sessions that I got called for, Dave Matthews, not the rock star Dave Matthews, but the one who did some charts for James Brown and was a jazz arranger in town. He was called by Ahmet to do the to arrange and conduct this thing. Even though it's just rhythm section first, he, he added strings to later to, uh, you know, uh, no, no, I can't remember the name of the first. Do you remember? Whatever that's. So 
it was Dave, and he called me, and he called Dave Weckl, a great drummer. Right. Uh, he was a jazz drummer, really. And uh, I recommended uh, the late Wayne Cresswater for bass to him. Mm-hmm. Because I knew that Robert really wanted an upright bass, but Matthews was, I don't know, you know, better get a Fender bass player, you know. Right. But right. I got I could put a, a sponge in there and sound pretty authentic. Right. And Jeff Beck and mm-hmm. Nile Rogers. Nile was producing the Jeff's album at right. the time they both came. And they so that, those were the two guitars. And we caught all these things and very fast. Yeah. One, one take two takes, you know, through them all. And then apparently they went to London and they overdubbed Jimmy Page there. Right. I don't know if they did. The, I'm not sure if they did the strings there or what, but right. that's the story of it. And then they would get it together. I also did uh, the Saturday Night Live show with Robert Plant and the Honey Drippers doing a Good Rockin' at Midnight and then a Christmas tune. Right. And uh, this time, it, Brian Setzer was was yeah. a good. So they were kind of living out this whoever's in town kind of thing. That's yeah. the idea. Great. Amazing to hear plant in your headphones, though. You can imagine when you're oh. playing. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. You know, and, yeah. and, you know, the thing about, you know, music is, again, it doesn't matter, you know, from the biggest rock star to the guy hustling on the street. It's like it, it, it just has its way of of if it if it works and it's simple people people just respond to it and you know it's like this infectious it's this, this infectious thing um before we wrap up just tell me a little bit you're working on uh, uh david's new show my next guest uh needs uh no introduction and you're scoring it i did some i did the scoring the first season mm-hmm. uh then they changed you know uh director producers and stuff and and they changed the feel of the show. First season, they wanted it to sound like it was just, you know, Dave's old pal Paul playing. Right. So I was scoring it really just with a piano a lot or just keyboards. And stuff. Now they've taken that to a new level, but still use my theme, which right. I'm absolutely thrilled about. I wrote a little uh, right. muscle style kind of thing for the theme. Right. And that's my involvement with it. But uh, very nice of him to... You know, out of loyalty, really. God bless him. I still hear my theme on there. Do you uh, do you miss the road? Do you look forward to getting back playing again? Or, 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 or we were talking earlier. I was like, you know, this after a few months, you're like, yeah, this ain't so bad. Staying staying around here and relaxing. Well, I was for a road player. I, I did a little tour. You know, since Letterman went off, I did a tour with the Letterman band, sort of a last hurrah. But otherwise, I, I hadn't done really any touring except the one time with. Belushi and Aykroyd in the, you know, 1980, the Blues Brothers. Right. We had our own plane, uh, which which, we used to sing, uh, because it it looked like we were headed for a a plane disaster, not only because of this twin-engine prop plane, but the people we had on. We had, you know, Southerners. We had contemporaries of Buddy Holly right on the plane with us. Right. Booker T and the MG, and I said, we're going down. Well, we never... We never did. Otherwise, I've been in, you know, in the studio with Letterman and stuff. So right. I never had that pleasure. Uh, I, you certainly are in a different position. You have lived on the road like Tommy Mottola. Yes. Or, since you were a, a child star. Am I correct? 
I, I, I've been on the road 31 years. This is this is the longest I've been off in 31 years. So it's, it must be like a real uh, withdrawal feeling for you, like coming off a crack or something. Yeah, it is. It, and, and it's a real, it's an interesting, you you know, I live in a house of guitars. I'm a guitar collector and, and whatever. And, and I, I've had a struggle with, you know, wanting to play. And, you know, and I've talked to a few of my friends who are also accomplished guitar players. I'm like, are you playing? And I'm like, and they're like, no. I'm like, either am I. So which kind of puts out the, the, the it, it kind of dispels the rumor that like, going, oh, can you imagine the kind of music that's going to come out of the, the pandemic? All these, all these people are just in their houses. All they do is play. Nobody's playing. Okay. There's a few exceptions, but anybody with a four in the first number who's been around a long time, we're just sitting around waiting, you know, and it's, it's. You know, what, what can you do about it? Well, can you jam over a thing like this, Skype or Zoom or anything? Are you in sync when you try to play together? Yeah, you know, I mean, we uh, we did a live stream, um, and I wrote, uh, 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 I was involved in writing a record for the great Eric Gale. So that, that kept me busy over the summer. But now that's over, and I'm just... Yeah. just what about if you're, you know, if you picked up a guitar there and, mm -hmm. and me on a keyboard here, could we play together? Now or would be out of would we be out of sync? I I think we'd be in sync. I I uh, I think we would. I don't know. Too bad because I don't have a keyboard, but it's <laughs> worth for next time. It's worth thinking. Next, next time, Paul. I can't thank you enough for being on this on the show and sharing your stories and 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 you know I mean you're a legend and and I've always been a big fan and I'm honored to call you my friend and. Thanks again for everything, you know. Well, Thanks to be with you, Joe, and to talk music. And I can't wait till I get to hear you live again real soon. And you know what? You you go down in Joe B. Legend. You're the one that came up with Bonham Monster. Proud of that, too. I <laughs> hope you get some use out of it. You are the Bonham Monster. I, I think we have a T-shirt that says Bonham Monster. I can't oh. wear it. That, that would just. All right. Wear, wear them in good health. Sell them in good health. <laughs> and have a great time. And thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Paul Schaefer. Until next time, this is Joe Bonamassa, and you've been watching live from Nerdville from New York City.